All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We're here today we're with a very special friend. His name is Sina. Sina, welcome to the corner. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to have you on here for a while now. We've been trying to make our uh, our schedules match up, and finally, we finally got you to come because you're off from work today. Yes, sir. Um, so usually the way that works, this works is we like to uh, look at your background, see who you are, where you grew up, where you were born, uh, your upbringing, and then get into some other stuff, you know, like the using, the drinking, whatever that may be, and then what you're doing with your life right now. So first and foremost, where are you from? Where were you born? Um, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1997. Okay. Um, we lived there for about three or four years, and my parents decided that they wanted help uh, raising my sister and I. So we went, moved to Iran. You know, I'm a Persian descent like yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we lived in Iran for about four years. Mm -hmm. And after that, um, you know, we just came to America on vacation, you know, to, like visit family. Mm -hmm. And How old were you then when you came? Like seven, maybe eight. Just to visit? Just to visit, yeah. And while we were visiting um somewhere along the way i'm not like too exactly sure on the details but my parents decided this is a better place to like raise our kids you mm -hmm. know so we uh we had family in maryland and virginia and you know we just ended up going to live in maryland okay and i know maryland all too well i got a lot of family that lives in bethesda and all around there so all right i love i love the dmv states um all right so you moved there what seven eight years old oh uh, yeah so you already we're speaking Farsi. You, I mean, you didn't really go to school in Iran much, right? Like a couple years. I did the first grade and okay. like kindergarten, but yeah, I didn't really know any English. And then, when you got to Maryland, what was it like growing up in in was it Rocks Rocksville, Maryland? Rockville, Rockville, yeah. right? Yeah, it was it was totally different, man. I felt like I was on like a different planet, honestly. You know, I uh, why? I remember like a week into you know we we're living in this new apartment and I went to school, I was going to school for like a week, like a week and I have like this vague memory of going to my parents and being like like mom dad this place is sick like I haven't gotten beaten up in like a week you know so, you, you haven't gotten beaten up yeah what yeah. do you mean or like in a month well because in Iran like the way the schools are set up like you could you could fight the teachers you could fight the other students and there really no no consequences for it fighting like that young yeah. People were fighting each other in school in Iran. Yeah, yeah. I had a uh, I had a cousin that was in the fourth grade who would like protect me in like the the recess area, the yard. Oh, from much. the other kids. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so kids were picking on you in Iran. Yeah. Why? Yeah, I have a big mouth. You know, I oh. always had a big mouth. Okay. I think that's the main reason. Um, I can't really like pinpoint. Maybe I was an easy target, or I just had a big mouth because I was always like the smallest guy in my grade, you know? Okay. And it was like that all the way up until ninth or 10th grade, you know, when I got taller, but I was always, my birthday is September 23rd. So I'm like on the, on the edge of like, whether you go to, you know, down a grade or up a grade. So I went up a grade. So I was always the smallest guy. So wait, so you say up until the ninth or 10th grade, this was happening. That means when you moved to America and you're going to school, you still had a big mouth. You were still getting beat up. Yeah. Like um, bullied. Yeah, it wasn't. It was fine. Like the first two years, like were you bullied or were you like causing problems and people were just upset with you? They didn't like you, so they were beating you up. There was there was two sides of it, right? One was that I was like, um, you know, I look different, you know, a different race, mm -hmm. and you know, I got a lot of. Uh, I know we've talked about this, you know, with the names that people call you and yes. the way you get treated because of that, mm -hmm. just for no reason. You know, middle school is is kind of where I became a man. <laughs> I had but, to learn to deal with a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also, when people would come at me like that, you know, I would go back at them. I wouldn't just take it and that would cause fights. So you were a fighter too. 
I was, I tried to be a fighter. Like I said, I was always the smallest guy, so I never really won, but yeah, it was. So you weren't afraid? No, I wasn't. Okay. And this went on up until the ninth or 10th grade, and then what? How old were you then? Um, 14? Yeah, 14 or so. Okay. And um, as a kid, like, what kind of dreams did you have? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? I never had an idea. You know, I that was one thing that really bothered me. All I was good at was, like, hustling coming up with business ideas or finding a scheme here and there. Okay. And um, so I always wanted to be like an entrepreneur. All right. And the idea of flying was always like something that was in the back of my mind, you know, but um, when it came time to explore that, I was already doing drugs and alcohol. And at that point, I just threw that to the side. I didn't even think about it anymore. So I'm like, I shouldn't be operating planes. I'm getting fucked up. So when you say you were already doing drugs and alcohol, how old were you when you first started? What was the first thing you ever tried and how old were you? Um, I mean, I had like a beer probably when I was in like sixth grade or so. That's pretty young. Yeah. I didn't start doing it all the time. I just remember like taking a couple sips. Like, okay. This is cool. You know? What friends? Was it at home? Was it at a family function? Oh, I was at home. I just kind of snuck out a beer. You okay. Know? Just trying to see what it's about. And Did you uh, like it? I liked it, but it wasn't like, I didn't drink enough to get like messed up. You know, the first time I drank enough to get messed up, I was at my friend's house and we raided their liquor cabinet. I think I was in like seventh grade. Right. And that time I got tipsy, you know, I was just like was infatuated with this. The this, feeling. With the feeling, yeah. I was yeah. like, this is crazy. You know, I got to feel like this all the time. Okay. And then uh, and then what happened? Like, uh, how was your grades? Did you grow up getting really good grades in school? Were you studious? Were you scholastic? Or were you... I was like... Were you a fuck up? No, I got good grades. You know, I was one thing that I wanted to always keep up so I could keep this image that I was doing fine where on the inside I always felt like I was dying you know I never felt like I fit in never felt like I was worth it a lot of insecurities yeah a lot of insecurities and uh, that was something Such a good looking kid and this kid had insecurities if I had your hair I probably wouldn't have been as insecure <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean you know I hated my hair too I hated like everything about myself right and I think that just goes with, with it's the nature of it you know like just growing up you just feel less than yeah it's I feel like especially in like a Persian household where you're held to such high standards, mm -hmm. you know, if I, ah, like, that's what I want to talk about. When yeah. you say high standards in a Persian household, does you, do you mean that your parents were, were uh, accomplished, very well accomplished in their lives? And so this, this was just culturally something that was expected of you too. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was never voiced to me that you need to, my dad, I remember he told me, he was like, listen, my parents made me become an engineer because that's in Iran, it's doctor, lawyer, engineer. That's right. You're a failure. That's he right. said, my parents made me, uh, made me like become an engineer and you know, I'm not the biggest fan of it. So I want you to do go through the career path that you feel most comfortable doing. Okay. And even though he told me that, it was like, I looked around at my family members, right? I got cousins that are doctors, you know, my mm -hmm. sister's a PA school. Right. And everyone's going for doing like studious things. Mm -hmm. And so... I didn't know what I want to do, but I was like, I just need to do like something that is respected. I don't care if I like it. Right. I just want the image to show, you know, my family that like mm -hmm. I'm a success. That's right. what it's all about. So you were getting good grades, but you were dying inside. And this was what, in, in like your high school years? Yeah. Good grades as in what? A's, B's? A's and B's. Okay. Any C's, D's? Were you, were you bad at anything? I probably got like two C's total maybe, no. or one, one or two. Okay. And that was just an expectation within the house. Like you need to get good grades or else. Was that kind of what was ingrained in you? You know, when I would, when I first time I got a C, I remember just coming home, my dad looked at it and he just kind of looked at me and he had like the most 
disappointed look on his face. Disgusted. You know, it's like, like, he didn't like yell at me or nothing, but he was just like disappointed. Which right, right. You could so do a lot more. better than this. Yeah. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Were you on drugs at that time? No, no. Um, I didn't like start doing drugs regularly until like my junior year of high school. Okay, so you guys raided a liquor cabinet at a friend's house. You got lit. You enjoyed that. That was were you immediately like just captivated by the feeling or did that kind of come a little bit later? Yeah, it came a little later. I love the feeling, right? But I was like so young. I was in seventh grade. I, um, you know, my friend was like, you know, he's the friend that I was with is like a really good kid. We were just kind of like messing around and he never was like, like telling me to do more or mm -hmm. we want to do it again. But we, we both liked it, but it was like, yeah, it's like a one-time deal. And mm -hmm. um, although I really loved it, I knew I was going to be dabbling with drugs and alcohol in the future. But How did you know? I just knew. Oh. It was like I was waiting for someone to offer me more drugs for a while. Was there kids in your school at the time that were already doing drugs that you could cut wind of? Like, did you know about people doing heavier stuff than just drinking? Not really. I was, like, really clueless. Okay, was there weed? Was there kids, like, smoking weed? Did you? Yeah, but I didn't know about it. You didn't know about it? Until I knew about it. Okay, so then how, that was more like in your junior year? Yeah. And what happened? Somebody happened to have weed? Well, my like friend group, mm -hmm. you know, we would like, you know, drink a little bit on the weekends and stuff, but that was it. But yeah. then one time um, they went fishing. I was, I was doing something else. So I didn't go, but they found like a little dime bag of weed in the parking lot of the fishing spot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said like, I gave us, you know, we found some weed. Let's go smoke it. Right. And there was like, I didn't even think about it. I was like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. You know, I want that like altered state of mind. Hmm. So we went. And Pretty we, much your dream had come true because yeah. you, you knew that you wanted to do this before. And now this is happening. Yeah. yeah. And, I and it's with friends. Yeah. Like who better to do this with than like your, your pals, your friends, the people that you like kick it with. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it went from alcohol to weed and then other things. Yep. Like what? Um, It went to like benzos, like Xanax and whatnot. Okay. So this is in high school. This was your yeah, end of senior year. And the senior year, how did you catch wind of benzos and Xanax? I mean, what, like, how did you know about this? So once we started smoking weed all the time, right, right we kind of found other people that did that too. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was like different friend groups from um, the D.C. area, from Baltimore. Right. And so we started hanging out with them, and they kind of like introduced us to all this new stuff that I had never knew even existed, what they did. And, you know, you just give someone a pill, right? It's mm -hmm. like, how harmful can this be? It's you just, just put it in your it's mouth. It's from a doctor. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you put so, it in your mouth and who knows what's going to – you don't know if you're going to go up or down. You just take it. Yeah. Yep. And I remember we were watching the Super Bowl. I remember like it was yesterday. It was like Panthers versus Broncos. Mm -hmm. And me and this guy, this guy made a bet, and um, I took the Broncos to win. He took the Panthers. And if I won, he was going to give me a couple of Xanax bars. Right. And if he won, I'll give him some money. So I won. You know, High school kids – uh dealing zannies over football yep yeah. <laughs> good times during that time though was there a lot of kids that were already getting see this this is i want to talk about this because this is important a lot of teenagers uh they talk about being barred out you know like just zanny bars like it's it's cute you know to them it's like they yeah. do this a lot because they 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 will get their hands on but how how were you getting xanax was it prescribed to somebody was it in grandma's like medicine cabinet? Was it um, being bought on the streets from like the plug, from like a dealer? Was it uh, being found on the internet, the dark web? How were you guys getting this stuff? So I don't know how my friend was getting it at the time, but when he got out of the picture, I would get it from the dark web. And, you know, all the stuff on there. And what's the dark web? 
Um, it's pretty much a, like eBay, but for drugs, and it's used through a Tor browser. You pay with Bitcoin, so it's untraceable. Wow. And kids are wise. Kids are yeah. clever. They figure this shit out. They know how to find this shit. Yeah, when you love something, like I love drugs, you know, yeah. you're going to learn all about it. So. Okay, so then and you, it's kind of a crapshoot because you don't really – I don't know if, if this was happening then, but right now when people obtain stuff off the dark web or various platforms to get drugs – we don't really know if it's really like Xanax. Oh, it's not. It's and not. E even if it was real Xanax, like the way the kids are taking it, it's like in excess. It's, it's it's lost its purpose. Xanax is to relieve anxiety, like, you know, temporarily. Not fucking take like five or ten different Xanax to just like to get annihilated, right? Yeah. So, but kids, I mean, you're going to do this stuff. Were you mixing the Xanax with, uh, with alcohol? Every time. And what kind of effect would that would that bring to you? Um, you know, it made you just not give a shit about anything or anybody. Just like um, you didn't have to think about anything. I didn't like feel bad. I didn't feel anxious. What was your mental mindset? Were you were you under? How does it feel to be on Xanax under the influence? Yeah, it's like it's like feeling like you're walking underwater in a way, mm -hmm. and it's like. Um, I, it's a lot. It's very similar to alcohol without the nausea. I would say. Mm -hmm. No. So okay, that's high school era. Um, then what? Did you, were you still on your way to college? Was this a plan? Yeah. Um, so my senior year, I I got rejected from the school I wanted to go to, which was University of Maryland, mm -hmm. and but I got into my safety school, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So. At that time, I was. Was well, was that school that you find that you did get into, like a community college? No, it was a university. It was a university, so you yeah. got rejected from one, mm -hmm. but you got into another. Yeah, and I didn't apply to any out-of-state colleges because I knew, like, I don't know what the hell I want to do with my life. Right. So why would I make my parents pay that out-of-state tuition? When sure. I don't even know what I want to do. I'm just going to college at this point to, like, in society's eyes, look like I'm doing something with my life. You know. So did you uh, graduate on time? From high school. From high school. Yeah. And even with the stuff that you were experimenting with, because a lot of times adolescents, like when they're doing drugs, depending on what kind of drugs they're doing, it's just an experimental phase. Sometimes it hasn't yet formed in a full-blown addiction. But um, you still passed with flying colors, obviously, because you, you were able to graduate on time, correct? Yeah. And I didn't graduate on time. Okay. <laughs> no, I was just blessed, honestly, because like I got into it my junior year right. and I got bad like at the end of my junior year mm -hmm. and when you're applying to universities they don't really look at your senior year mm -hmm. and my senior year i tanked you know it's terrible right but. so bad grades then senior year but is that why you didn't get into the other school no it was just um maryland's a competitive school mm -hmm. and i was like right on the borderline you know that so. whole area is just highly educated yes yeah, highly educated there, dc you know. maryland all of that virginia okay so so when you went to the school were you out of the house now, not with the family anymore? Yeah. Moved on to campus? Yep. Dorms? Mm-hmm. What the fuck was going on in the dorm? <laughs> you know, the dorm actually, because the school that I went to, it was so academic-based mm -hmm. that the, there wasn't really like parties like that. And that's why I didn't really want to be there. You know, it was a good school academically, very good. But like, that's I wanted to That's where all the straight-edge kids are at? Yeah, I wanted to party. You know, I wanted to be part of that scene. So when I got there, it just wasn't for me, and I just kind of – locked myself in my dorm room and I was like, I'm studying all day, every day. And I'm going to the University of Maryland. You know? Were you getting high? I was getting high on weed every day. Okay. I, um, I, I would do Xanax like once a month. I, was, I stopped it like, cause I knew it was fucking me up and I couldn't like take my test. But 
So I would take Adderall to study for the test, take sure. the test, get a good grade. And this then, is a very common thing. Students be taking Adderall so yeah. that they can be more focused and, and fixated on like the studies, right? And now they're all pressed with meth, you know? And it's like a lot of people don't even know that. Because the Adderall they're getting is not prescribed. Like some kids get prescribed that shit so that they can really like be engulfed in, this, in their school, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were, you were doing Adderall to study in the dorm, smoking weed. Did other Was there other students smoking weed too? Um, Did I, you smell it in the building? Not really, you know, because in the dorm, it's like super serious. You know, if they catch you smoking weed, you're getting kicked out. I was okay. like super slick about it. How were you slick about it? So I would like take like snaps out of the bong, make sure that none of the smoke got out of the bong. I'd hold it for like 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. I had made like a sploof, which is like uh, like the toilet paper. Toilet paper? Yeah, put some laundry. Uh, it's a roll, put the laundry. Yeah. Okay, so nothing there. original. This is what we were doing 27 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, it worked though. It worked. Oh, yeah, it kills the us not. Exactly. And put a towel behind the door, make sure it doesn't get underneath. Yeah, it. some osium air freshener. We're calculated. We're right? calculated. That's, That's what right. we do. Okay, so. So there's that. And then Xanax, Xanax once a month. Uh, grades were good? Grades were very good. Yeah, I got all A's and one B. Okay. And with that, in the first semester, I shot my uh, another application to University of Maryland. This time, I got accepted. All right. So then what? Then, um, you know, so I just, I go, I do my second semester. I'm not really trying anymore because I know I'm going to the school I want to go to. Mm -hmm. So I do that. I got like all B's and a C, which for me isn't that good, but. So then I'm, you know, next year I go to University of Maryland, right? Mm -hmm. This is what I've wanted for like as long as I could remember. I thought everything, you know, I would. Why did you want it? Because it's a better school? Better school, right? Because I felt like kind of like a failure for going to this other school mm -hmm. because like I said, the high standards. And, you know, I would go. So, yeah, you know, my sister was at University of Maryland. Okay. I was like, you know, I wanted to be on her level. How much older is she than you? She's um about three years older than me. Okay. Yeah. So I've got, you know, my a lot of my good friends were at that school. My sister was there. Sure. Probably like one of the best schools you can go to in the area. So I felt like, you know, I was on the right path, you know, and I was given like, this was a great opportunity for me. You know, if I turned things around then, who knows what would happen. When you went there, were you on in a dorm? No, I got an apartment. A you got an apartment. Students. Yeah. That means that there's no limitations. No limitations. On any, no. On any messing around, on smoking, drinking, none of that, right? Yeah. So that is that where it like really kind of, where the partying really like was was underway, like you yeah. were just doing it. I took off, you know. I drinking, drinking, smoking pills, coke. smoking pills, uh, smoking and pills. Oh, smoking and I'll, pills. Yeah, and okay. co cocaine was a big part of that too. Okay, when you say pills, was it Xanax? Xanax and like Percocet. Okay, now you've gotten into the opiates. Yeah. yeah. Percocet. How are you getting the Percocets? Dark dark, dark web again. Yeah. Okay, and uh, and how did that make you feel? Um, it was, I would always combine the Xanax and that and alcohol, you know, it's like a deadly combo. I didn't know at the time, but that was like, when I would combine all those three, it was like my mind was just kind of shut down and I was able to act however the hell I wanted to and just feel a bunch of euphoria at the same time. It's very euphoric. Yeah. So Sina, uh, question for you, like the first time like you ever saw Xanax in front of you or opiates for that matter. Did it ever like go through your mind that this isn't good? Like, but I'm still curious and I want to do it. Or were you just like, this is great. I can't wait to do this. You know what? The funny thing is, it's like, I was actually more like 
I've been lied to my whole life. Drugs are fine. Mm -hmm. Because the first time I was told like from a kid that weed is so bad for you, right? Mm -hmm. And I was smoking it and I was still getting good grades and things like that. So I was like, okay, like I've been lied to my whole life. Drugs are okay. Right. So every time I saw a new substance, I was like, yeah, they've been lying to me. You know, this can't be that bad. So. But you never thought to yourself that if I do this, these opiates, it might turn into like heroin? Never thought that, no. Never, never crossed your mind. No. Did not know about it. Never thought like these, this is opiates and sometimes people's opiate addiction becomes, you didn't have knowledge of that yet. I didn't. And it was funny because I was like at University of Maryland. I was like drinking lean at the time, the cough syrup. Okay. You know? Tell me about that. What is lean? Just so people, I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. educate some people in it's, case they um, don't know. It's what, promethazine codeine okay. cough syrup. Yes. And it's, um, yeah, it's pretty much like liquid opiate. So was it prescribed codeine or was it over the counter? It was prescribed. Yeah. To who? Um, just to like, I don't know. I would go to DC, Southeast DC. Yeah. And there was this guy, I think that would rob the pharmacies because I mean, that's what they do down there. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. You In know, the rougher part of DC? Yeah. Southeast is kind of where, um, they would kind of go down. Like I would have to go with other friends that knew people there because, you know, I'm not black, you know, everyone there is black. Sure. So if I, when I went there by myself, mm -hmm. he was kind of looking at me like, what the hell is this guy doing here? Yeah. He's so, here for one reason. Yeah. Right. So I would go with them and they'd introduce me to people and we'd be cool. And I would just get all my stuff there. So the lean, what was that doing to you? Uh, it made me feel like a lot of euphoria. Mm -hmm. I felt really heavy. Like, like I was kind of like nodding a little bit. Right. Um, but yeah, it was really expensive. So I couldn't do it the way I wanted to. That's why I would like transition to the pills. Okay, so at this point, you're full-blown, like, addict. You're doing anything that you can use, anything under the sun, to be able to just be fucked up at all times. Yeah. Right? Does that mean that your school, your grades were going downhill? Yeah, they died. Yeah. Um, because once I got to Maryland, the thing that I thought I wanted so much, I hated there. You know, I felt totally out of place. At, at University of Maryland, the yeah. very place that you wanted to get to in the first place that rejected you. And we've talked about this, you know, that's, that was my ego the whole time tricking me. Like, if you get here, you're going to be happy. Finally. Right, right. And my ego tricked me. Um, so I, I went there and I realized it wasn't what I wanted at all. So I went. Was it not, you didn't want it because you, because there was a lot to ask for. They're going to, there's high expectations of the school, of your family's expectations as well. Is that why? Or was it because you were full blown fucked up and like, you just can't even perform in the school? Yeah, it was a mix of all those. Mm -hmm. And I also wasn't like part of like the social activities like I wanted to be. I didn't want to join a fraternity because um I didn't I was like there's no way my parents are gonna pay for that. Mm -hmm. And um so yeah, you know, I would just kind of walk around, go to the bars. Some of some of my friends are fraternities, I go party there, but I never had like a brotherhood that I wanted. That was something that I always wanted for as long as I can remember and I thought I would be able to find it there. But I was like, you know me, I'm an introverted guy, you know, yeah. it's hard for me to put my name out there. So yeah. I never really connected with a group of guys. I never really had a brotherhood. Sure. Okay. So now you're tanking in school. Like grades have dropped. Yes, yeah. You're in full blown addiction. Did something dramatic happen? Any kind of crisis? Um, how long were you there? I was there. I went. So I was there for like four or five months. Okay. And you know, I would go to rehab this and that, and then I'd come back and I'd be there for four or five months. So you've already started going to rehab during that time. Yeah. Within four or five months. Is that because? Um, your parents caught wind of you being messed up or yeah. did you call them and say, I'm messed up? Did you get in trouble with the law? I can't remember if I got in trouble with the law. No, I think I got in trouble with it after. But at this point, my parents just came to take me to a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. They came to my apartment and they just saw me passed out on the couch with like a bottle of uh, like Hennessy next to me. 
And you know, my mom woke me up. She's like, what are you doing? Like, we got to go to the doctor. And I was like, okay, okay. Like, I don't remember any of this. And they're paying for me. the apartment and everything. They're paying for everything. Yeah. yeah so they, she says, get up. And I said, okay. I got up. I don't remember any of it, but I grabbed the Hennessy. I took another drink. Were you like 20 years old during this time? I think I was like 18 or 19. Oh, you were young. Yeah. I just couldn't function. You right. know, I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. So my parents took me to the doctor. Um, I don't really know what happened. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in like Texas in a psychiatric ward. In because, a psych ward in Texas? Yeah, because my parents, you know, they're innocent people. They don't know what addiction is and what kind of drugs I was doing. Mm-hmm. They're like, alcohol doesn't do that to you the way you're acting. Did they just think you were psychotic? Yeah. Okay. So they put me there and I'm there for like two days and they're like, dude, you're an addict. Right. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like 19 years old. I'm not even old enough to drink legally. How can I be an addict? It doesn't make any sense. So I didn't buy it, you know, but I did it to make my parents happy. Okay, so then you go to treatment for like a month, two months, and then come back to school? Three months. Yeah, I went to treatment for three months. Were you allowed to come back to school even like with this break of going away to treatment? Yeah. The school knew? I forget what we told them. We said like a medical. It was problem. a medical. Okay. Yeah. Medical leave. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so you go to treatment, you come back, and then you wouldn't, you weren't staying sober. Kathy says hi, by the way. Oh, yeah, what's up, Kathy? <laughs> um, yeah, I came back and I tried to stick to, because, you know, my, I kept trying to convince myself I'm not an addict, mm-hmm. that I can drink normally and I can smoke weed normally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tried to do that. That lasted like two months or so. Okay. And yeah, you know, I just, I went back to, I remember I did Adderall. Had you first. ever, during that time like, when all this was happening, had you ever caught wind or ever heard about recovery? Because yeah. when you went to treatment, obviously they'd be talking about that stuff. Yeah, yeah, they took us to like AA meetings and stuff like that. Okay. And I remember going there, and I'm um, just kind of looking around, I'm like, damn, like, everyone's so old, you know? Everyone's <laughs> everyone's so lame. What is this? In like Texas and shit. Yeah, you know. But no, actually, they had. I was going to Northbound, so they flew me to Northbound, which was California, in Costa Mesa. Okay. Yeah, so I was like, I just took everyone's inventory. I refused to look at myself and see what my part was. Yeah. You know, and I just kept trying to convince myself how, like, there's no way I could be an alcoholic or an addict. And even other clients would tell me, they're like, oh, dude, you're 18. You know, you, you know, you don't, um, you don't have a felony yet. This and that. You're not an addict. You just got unlucky. And they kind of like, I even, I was such a manipulator. I convinced my case manager there that I wasn't an addict. You know? (laughs) Yeah. You convinced him or he was just agreeing with you? Well, you know how you're from treatment, you're supposed to go to IOP. Yeah. She dropped me down straight to support, which was like, come see her for an hour, like once a week. Okay. So, right. yeah. So then you made your way back to school and what ended up happening with school? How, um, how long was all this? Was it one year or two years that you were attempting to do the school thing and, and party up? Yeah. I mean, I went there for like two semesters, you know, I, so that first semester I came back and I tried again. This time my parents uh, wouldn't pay for an apartment because mm-hmm. of what happened. So I was like commuting, taking a bus there. And from was, their house? Yeah, from their house. Were you still using? Yep. Using at their house? Yep. Useless. I, I mean, <laughs> take you out of the apartment, take yeah. you home. Still it doesn't cool. do anything. You know, wherever you go, you're going to take yourself with you. So okay. I learned along the way. So, and then what? Did you drop out of school? Um. Yeah. Yeah. So I was there for like a couple months. And, you know, my, my addiction got back full force, stronger than it ever was. And, you know, it, like that whole time is really blurry. I don't really remember what happened because I was like borderline blacked out the whole way. What about catching the case? The case happened somewhere along that way. You know, when I was I was selling drugs, I was 19 years old. What were you selling? Um, They caught me with, you know, my scale, like a pound of weed and like 50 Xanax pills, like pre-baggied. Lovely. Lovely, yeah. It's not good. Yeah. 
not good. With a scale? Yeah, scale. So what, it was you were arrested for intent to sell. Uh, yep. Was it undercover cops that came for you? Was it? Who? I mean, how'd they find out? I was driving at like one a.m. I was speeding, blasting music. You know, I didn't because at the time I'd never been pulled over before. I didn't. I was more scared of my parents finding my stuff than the cops. So I kept everything in my car. Scale and all this stuff was in your car, and everything. you got pulled over for that one in the morning. Yep. Took you to jail. Yep. Confiscated your stuff. Yep. Didn't keep you sober. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, man. Okay, tell me more. Then you, uh, then what? Was it back to treatment? Uh, yeah, I was back to treatment. And um, this time I was going to make the courts happy and my parents happy. I still had no intentions of getting sober. I didn't see how it was possible at the time. Because I never, I would go to AA meetings and I would just see the meetings. I, would, I didn't know anything about step work and things like that. Where were you going to treatment this time? Were you back out in California? Um, yeah, yeah. I basically got wind of, um, you know, the body brokering scene. I don't okay. uh, th we want to talk about this. Do okay. we? Okay. How did you catch wind of the body broker? Let's talk about that. What is a body broker? What What's that scene? It's someone who's going to pay you to go to treatment, basically. And how, were you in a treatment center and somebody told you, hey, do you want to get paid to leave this place to go to the next place? Yeah. Okay. And that was in California? That was, that was in California. All right. So... They made you this proposition. You were, what, two weeks in or something like that, and they told you they could put you in another place? Yeah, you know, I actually I met this guy at Northbound who I was I messaged him because I knew he was doing that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and I want, I needed to go to treatment to get the courts off my back, and I was like, I might as well get paid while I'm doing that. And I had no intentions of staying sober or nothing, so I didn't really see anything wrong with it at the time. Right. Well, of course not. Um, so when you – Left that treatment center. Did they pay you? No, I got ripped off that time, actually. That's what a lot of them do. Yeah, yeah. Ripped off because what did they tell you? It's sort of like a, the plug, like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I'll, like, I'll get you later. I'll get you later. Is that what they were trying to say? Um, Yeah, pretty much. It was like, he was like, stay there for 14 days. You can leave after 14 days. How much days. did they offer you? Uh, I think two grand that time. And then they, how much did they give you? Nothing? Nothing, no. Not one red cent? Nothing. And you, they, but they put you in another place? I went to somebody else after that. Oh, another person. I yeah, I wasn't going to trust that guy again after he ripped me off. And then what? And, you know, I this next person, it worked out, and I got the money after that 14-day stay. They gave you two grand? Uh, I think it was 2.5. 2.5 grand. And then you, what did you do? Did you go get loaded? Yeah, went, got, got a motel, got loaded for a couple of days. And so, then. So now you're just doing the treatment hopping thing. Yep. This is all in Southern California. Going from place to place. Costa Mesa, yeah. Never had any hope or want of wanting to really stay sober 100%. Didn't see how it was possible. Didn't even want to. No. You knew you were on your parents' insurance. You knew that you could do this hopping thing. You can get high through the process. Why would you going to get sober? I mean, I already messed school up, have a case back home, whatever, right? Yeah. So then what? So, you know, I just keep doing that for a while, and I remember – one time, you know, because they'll put you in a motel for like a night before you go into the treat before sure. they drive you to that treatment center. Uh -huh. And I remember they put me in this motel. Uh, it was the Alibaba in Costa Mesa. Uh -huh. And, you know, I'm going to sleep. I'm getting ready to go to treatment next day. You know, I'm really messed up. And, you know, I'm in there with another guy. And, you the know. Alibaba Motel. Yeah. I, I, I know it all it's too well. It's run down, man. It's majorly run down. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot, a lot of activity in that place. Yeah, so I wake up the next morning and I see this guy on the bed, like lips are blue, he's a black eye, and I just start freaking out because I'm like, this guy's dead. 
you know, so I just book it out of the motel. You know, I'm like 19 years old. This was time. he dead? Oh yeah, he was dead. Overdosed and died. I found out on Facebook a couple of days later. Yeah. This was one of your friends. Friends, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, from a treatment center or something like that. He basically croaked in front of you. Yep. Nobody came and questioned you. Asked afterwards, wanted to know like if you were with him last, or they just assumed he was dead and took him to the morgue. I guess, yeah. I never got any questions about it. Interesting. So then, uh, this freaked you out. Obviously, the fear was there. Now at this point, you know, like your lifestyle is dangerous. Mm -hmm. People around you are dying. Then what? So then I call my parents. I'm like, listen, I need to get out of here. You know, I. Uh, like, I want to do this thing for real. Still didn't mean it, but... Wait, how old were you now? I uh, might have been 20, but I was probably still 19. Okay, um, okay. So I go back to Maryland. I'm staying with... They let me stay with them again for, like, a month or so. Okay. And I, my addiction's still going full force, and then they send me to uh, treatment in Baltimore. How many times at this point do you think you'd already gone to treatment? At that point, like, seven or so. Okay. So you were hopping around a lot. Now you're in Baltimore. I mean, that's like a rough area too, yeah. depending where you're at in Baltimore. Uh, what happened there? So I went to um, I went to this place, Father Martin Ashley, mm -hmm. and there I met a girl, and we just kind of started doing like the motel hopping in Baltimore City. So you guys left treatment together to go, go get high? Yeah. All right, then? Um, so, yeah, she overdosed after like a week and a half in the motel. I had to do CPR on her and everything. And after seeing that, because she was to a no avail, you were not able to revive her. I was. Oh, you um, did save her. Yeah, okay. I was. Um, no Narcan or anything like that. No, we didn't have anything. I didn't know anything about like she was an IV heroin user. You know, was I, she shooting dope in front of you. Yeah. Were you shooting? I didn't shoot, but I tried it. You have tried shooting at this point. Yeah, yeah. So okay. she kind of put me onto that. Put me on. What game. were you doing? How were you doing stuff? Smoking it, eating pills. I was like the heroin. I was. I tried snorting it. And back back east, it was China White. It wasn't like black tar heroin that's on the West Coast. No, I've seen this stuff out here. I never tried it. This okay. looked terrible to me. Okay. Okay. Um, so she overdosed, you revived her, and then what? How long did you guys last? On and off for like probably like a year total. I don't know how it even went like a year, but you know, it was like I would be sober or and then she would relapse or she would be sober and I would relapse. How long would you be sober when you'd be sober? Like a month, maybe two tops. Okay. Just white knuckling it. For court, man, the court scared. You're trying to make people happy, judges, lawyers, parents, mm -hmm. not you. Yeah, and I violated probation twice, you know, during that time. Okay. Because I would get blacked out and like walk into my neighbor's houses and stuff, you know, <laughs> and they call the cops on me and I go to jail. Walk in there thinking you were walking to your own house? Yeah, okay. or walking into my girlfriend's house. Interesting. All right. Then? So then I, um, you know, that didn't last and they threw me. They threw me, I just kept going to treatment center, treatment center. And it was like, this is all back East. Yeah. And it was like my 15 or 16th one, you know, and I was like, my life's not going anywhere. It's been like, at this point, I'm probably like 21, 21 or so. And I'm like, my life's not going anywhere. I still don't think like I need to get sober. I'm still like, you know, I've, I've overdosed at this point. I've had many seizures mm -hmm. and my, my logic is telling me I'm just doing too much. I need to slow down with it. Okay. You know, it's like seizures, seizures. Yeah. This would be as a result, a result of overdosing. No, the benzo withdrawals. Benzo withdrawals. Okay. So that means when you were attempting to quit benzos on your own, you'd seize up. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. And I would never be attempting to quit. I just run out, you know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you just, you didn't have it. I just didn't have it. Yeah. That happens with benzos. Happens with alcohol too. Withdrawals. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Wow. And it's deadly. Those seizures can kill you. 
Yeah, I've heard. I've heard. There could be just that one time. Okay, so then um, then what happened? Well, you know, I just kept doing these treatment centers and, um, you know, just kept relapsing right after. And eventually... Didn't you make your way back out west? Yeah, yeah. So I was in my parents' basement using again, you mm -hmm. know. It's just like, you know, a couple of years I was doing this shit. It wasn't getting any better. And I got off probation, you know, and I was so stoked. And they were like, okay, like now it's time for you to go, you know, like you're going to die the way you're doing things, you know, you're going to die. We just don't want you to die in our basement at this point. Right. You know, we can't be a part of this. So they're like, where do you want to go? And, um, you know, we'll pay for it. Just go. So I was like, well, you know, I've heard when I was out here, people were telling me cool things about, you know, Santa Barbara and like the school out in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. So I just send me over there, pay for a house over there. And I'll you know, just go to school. I'll go to school and I'll figure it out. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So I went to like the, one of the party capital schools. Yes. And um, this is known. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, there's great education in Santa Barbara. There is. But there's, there's a, a huge party scene. Yeah. It was like, it was like heaven to me at the time, you know, until, it, until it wasn't because when I, because when I drink, I drink to get obliterated. Yeah. Know? And I don't drink to drink socially. I'm just trying to get as fucked up as possible. Annihilated. Yeah. Yeah. So I caused a lot of problems there. I got arrested four times my time there for what being drunk in public yeah that a dui um yeah i think the rest were drunk in public and, and I, you were living with like on campus or were you living uh, in I was an apartment li with some friends i was living like where the seniors would all live so it was like a house on del playa drive which is right on the water mm -hmm. and they would all walk to class you know i know exactly where that's at that's yeah. a major party area yeah man. okay so then what so I, I'm there and I'm just doing my thing. I'm, I'm burning this place to the ground. I'm fighting people every weekend. I'm getting I'm, in fights. Yeah, the people are finding me in the street covered in blood. Like, and I keep going to jail. And I remember the last time I called my mom. I'm like, I'm like, hey mom, I'm in jail again. It's all good. I'm used to it. I'll be out soon. Just want to let you know. Like, that's why I'm not answering my phone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this, but as soon as she heard that, it's like, oh, he's getting used to jail. All right, like she flew out to come get me, you know, and to talk to me. The rescue team came. The rescue team came, you know, <laughs> and um, yeah, I went to because uh, at that I did that because I knew it was time. The party was over. COVID had hit. It was like March. Right. The party stopped. Everyone went home, and I was like, "Well, I don't want to be here no more." There's um, no more partying. Everybody's like, "Yeah, you know, the party's dispersed. over." <laughs> right. So I went to treatment, and uh, I still, at this point, I was like, "Yeah, I got a problem with the other stuff. I can still smoke and drink though," and so I tried that. Went to one treatment center. Uh, left, relapsed, and then, and then I met you after that because after that treatment center is when I they went. I went to the sober living, and when I relapsed, I went really hard. I had no tolerance, and I ended up in a coma. That's right. And you had been in a coma one time before from an overdose. Um. Yeah. It's my understanding. Two times you have overdosed and been in a coma. Yeah. How long were your comas usually? The first one was just like a day. Okay. The second one was like four days or so. Four days. Why did you go into a coma? Do you know? I probably, I mean, I'm not exactly sure, right? Because I remember when I relapsed, I first I took the Xanax pills and I took like a couple of the oxycodone pills after that, mm -hmm. but I blacked out. So when I blacked out, I probably, I still had a bunch left and I probably took like all of them. Okay. Was there fentanyl in the mix? Yeah. How are you getting fentanyl? It was pressed into these blues and, you know, the guy would tell me like, Hey, like these are pressed with fentanyl. I was like, even better, you know? So when you were getting these, you knew you were going to be taking fentanyl and were you smoking it? I was snorting it. Snorting it. Yeah. So you were taking these pills and you were breaking it up knowing that it's got fentanyl in it and snorting that. And what was, how many times did you overdose? A lot. I don't know. I lost count probably like 20 times total. 
You're a dead man walking. Yeah. No. You're a fucking dead man walking. Yeah, it's crazy. When I look back at it, how I'm still here. Okay, so that, that's when we met. You were, um, your parents had caught wind of me um, a, a year before from another Cena who actually lived in Maryland. Yeah, you told me about that. And uh, they called me. Your dad had called me one time and asked me for help and how I could help him. And then he ghosted. So I didn't hear from him anymore. And the following year is when they called again and said, we had talked to you before. Since then, our son has been to a few different places and he hasn't stayed sober and we're very worried about him. He's in Newport Beach. He um, is, he overdosed and they called us from the hospital. He overdosed and he is in a coma or just got out of a coma, right? And can you go, what, what can we do here? I said, I'll go visit him. So I remember walking into there and into the room at Hogue Hospital down in Newport Beach. And um, there was a lady that was sitting there and she was like an on-call social worker, perhaps. Um, I don't know. I think they were either putting a nurse or like an assistant to nurse in the room with you around the clock to oversee you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then um, your parents had sent me a letter to give to you. I remember when I walked in, you were somewhat of a cocky kid, like not with me. You were being cocky with them, right? You were kind of rude. And I just thought to myself, bachiporu, right? <laughs> and like in our language, in the Iranian language, when we say bachiporu, it means like rude kid, right? So I just thought to myself, okay, like he just woke up from a coma. He's not in the best of spirits. Nah, I can understand. He's just being a dick to these people, whatever. But um, but then when you like looked at me, you didn't really pay me no mind like until I showed you the letter from your parents. And then you became highly emotional. I saw the tears in your eyes. I saw a little boy. Basically, you just like went back to being a little boy who was scared and in fear and didn't know what to do. And um, tell us about what happened after that. Well, you know, I read that letter and it was based on parents telling me like they don't want anything to do with them anymore. Like, don't contact us, you know, because um, I was a I was a dead man walking, you know, and I, I was about to die. And it's like I think they were at the point where they're like, just don't talk to us because you're going to like we can't we can't deal with this anymore. So I started crying because I just kind of realized like how much time I've wasted, how I've burned everyone that loved me. Like I burned all those bridges. You know, my, right. my family was always there for me through right. everything through a lot and it it took a lot to make them say like don't fucking talk to us anymore right because they didn't say that before no before it was like mom can i have 150 dollars for groceries sure yeah let's yeah. venmo it to you like right away and sure enough that's that that last relapse right there well that overdose right there that turned into a coma was because you were supposed to go buy groceries instead you got drugs yeah in a sober living in santa Ana. yeah right okay and then so you you and i at that point were now Somewhat in each other's lives. Yeah. Somewhat. I took you back to the sober living. You went and got whatever you needed to. Sent you to treatment. You played a game in that treatment center saying, I don't want to be in this treatment center because I want to remain on Suboxone maintenance. Right? <laughs> yeah. The reason for that usually is, when, and a lot of people will not agree with me on this, but this is what I believe. Were you trying to stay on Suboxone maintenance because sometimes if you're still on maintenance doesn't mean you want real recovery and there's a possibility of you might go back to the lifestyle. Is that why? That's exactly why. That's you know? exactly why. And right? um, I know it's like a touchy subject with the subs and whatnot, but I did not. I need. I still needed something. I didn't know anything that like real recovery could cure the, the internal pain that I had because I was so full of fear and resentments. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I just was like, I can't feel like that. But with the subs, it makes it a little better. 
because the subs you kind of still can feel something. Yeah, a little bit. Right. So you went to that treatment center. You didn't stay there. You got out. You went to one place. Then you went to another place on your own. You wanted me out of your life. You wanted nothing to do with me because I was getting in the way of you and whatever addiction that you wanted to have still. Yeah, I hated you. I know you hated me. <laughs> I know you did. And then your parents uh, were not talking to you during that time. They pulled out like they, they were done, right? In that time, you were clever. Based off of a pandemic, uh, what a good addict would do is uh, take advantage of the system, get their unemployment, uh, go out and, and use that money for things. I think you had gotten, what was it, the uh, the stimulus check or something like that? Yeah, and I got like 11000 or so from unemployment. Okay, 11000 from unemployment. Stimulus also. Um, you got yourself, a, you got out of treatment. You went and got yourself a room that you rented in a house. Yep. You bought a car in that time with some of that money. Yep. And then you got a, a part-time job or a full-time job. I don't remember. Part-time job at a sandwich shop. Part-time job at a sandwich shop. And you were still getting high. Yeah. And um, I remember because once my parents said that, I said, I, I made like a personal mission. Like, fine, you don't want anything to do with me. I don't need you guys. I'll you do know? this on my own. Yep. It's, me, it's always been me versus the world. It's right. my pride and my ego. Just shout, you know, I can do this. So on, on this end of that, I was in talking with your parents quite regularly. You had shut me out completely. They would ask me questions. They would say, will he come around? They were worried about you quite often. Um, they loved you very much, right? Uh, but you were doing your own thing. And then after you were doing your own thing for a while, I think you got to a point where in your life where the money ran out. Um, you realized that you couldn't uh, really survive off of a part-time job in a sandwich shop. And your parents texted me one day and said, um, he's complaining about the fact that he can't pay for his Wi-Fi and he can't pay for his car and he can't pay for his gas and he can't pay for his room. Uh, what should we tell him? And I said, tell him to get two jobs. I remember that. I was pissed. <laughs> I was really pissed. Tell him to get two jobs. <clears throat> so here's where I, I, I started to realize maybe he's getting to the end of his rope and maybe now he's going to become more willing. Then... I believe that they told you, why don't you just call Pej? And you said, I don't want to talk to that guy. I don't need to talk to him. Instead, what you did is you tried to, I think it was like another day or two, you were out trying to do it on your own. Then finally, I got a phone call from you. And you, I think it was a phone call or text. What should I do now? I said, are you ready? You said, yes. And it took about a week because you were waiting for one more paycheck or something. You were waiting for some money to come in. I need to go one last run. One last run. Yeah. And it took about a week, but finally we had you signed up to go to a treatment center. And this was gonna. This is one that I handpicked where I really, I knew the type of work that they do, and the plan was to get you in there to get you cleaned up enough and do some treatment, and then come to one of the sober livings, right? And structured sober livings. And so you went there. It took. It was like pulling teeth to get you to go, but you finally went. You you were so fucked up that day that uh, I think that you thought that you left your. Uh, a bag or something back in your car. Yeah, yeah. But I think you were so messed up that the Uber that took you, you didn't realize that you had it with you all along or something like that. Right. So you went to detox and I remember like you were trying to purposely get kicked out of detox. Right. Oh, oh. Um, I believe you wanted to go on one more run. You would smoke cigarettes in the detox, just acting up to try to be a rebel and get kicked out. And they would call me and complain about you. And what do we want to do with this guy? And I said, just please work with him. Just work with him. And then, Finally, like something shifted in you. Yeah, yeah, I was there. And I was doing everything you were saying. Like I was 
cursing at the staff, smoking cigarettes in there just because they had that 72 hour rule. You know, if you leave, you don't get your stuff back for 72 hours. Right. And I was like, well, if I want to leave so I can get high. I need my car. I need my wallet, yes. my phone to call the plug and this and that. So I was like, you know, I'm so, I'm so bright and I'm so intelligent. If, yeah. they, if they kick me out, they got to give me my stuff back. Right. So I start trying to get kicked out and I'm doing this. And one of the techs like comes to my room and is like, it's like, dude, like what the hell's wrong with you? You know, why are you doing this? I'm like, I'm like fuck what's you, his man. name? His name was Mike. Okay. He was like, um, he only had like six months over, right. but, and he was volunteering there as a tech. And he was like, he had done a couple of years in prison. And, you know, I called him a bitch, you know, because I was trying to get kicked out. Right. And he just kind of went off on me. You know, he's like, he almost hit me. You know, it was really, it got really heated. And I just kind of walked away from the situation. And I went to the bathroom. I looked at myself mm-hmm. and I just started crying. You know, I'm, I was, I remember thinking like, damn, I'm a grown ass man. Now I'm 23 years old. I'm still acting like this. You know, it's been like four or five years of treatment centers, this and that. And nothing has changed. I feel worse than I've ever felt. You know, it's time to do something different. And that's kind of where the the, I the shift switch. in perception, the yeah. shift in decision making, the, the wanting to do different. Yeah. Parents weren't talking to you. I'm the only thing in your life now. Yeah, it was bad. It was but, bad, <laughs> real bad. Yeah. And I remember I came and visited you a couple of times, and you were cordial. You were nice to me. You weren't rude. You weren't a dick. But I, I myself even found myself saying to you, like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're gonna get kicked out. Like, what? You're gonna be walking the streets with nothing, right? You're gonna have to wait three days to get your stuff. Stay here and do this. You ended up staying for thirty days. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I remember probably within a week and a half of getting reports about how well you were doing. Two weeks, he's doing really great. By one month, we brought you to the sober living. This is a complete transformation. I mean, even in the beginning, I don't really think you were all the way about it, but you definitely had gotten plugged into the recovery community. You were still introverted. You sometimes still are. Yeah. You got a, a spiritual advisor, a mentor that was helping you. You started listening and you started showing me an immense amount of respect. You did have me in your phone as fuck page. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I saw that one day and then I was like, why do you have me in there? He's like, because I used to say fuck this guy. Page. Something that I think is really vital and important to talk about is that besides me talking to your parents, you had a friend who at one time was caught up in the game. Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah, we can talk about it. Talk about Drew. Um, Drew was a friend that I met at Northbound. You know, he used to be in the body brokering game. He's okay. one of the guys that sent people to treatment centers. Mm-hmm. And some stuff happened with him and his partners where he just kind of said, I can't do this shit no more because someone died in that process. <laughs> and the, one of his partners was uh, facing a manslaughter charge and it just all kind of went downhill. And, you know, he was of somebody overdosing and dying of fentanyl. fentanyl? Yeah, yeah. I think fentanyl that guy had given him to go to treatment. Okay. So he said, I'm done with this. And he, you know, he basically, w- he would see me on my Snapchat stories, posting me getting fucked up, thinking I'm so cool, this and that. Mm-hmm. And he would message me like real shit. He'd be like, dude, when are you, re- you going to get your fucking life together? Does that mean that Drew had gotten sober and stayed sober too? Yeah, with, through the 12 steps and all that. How old was he? He was 27, I believe. A little bit in his later 20s. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so he's then reaching out to you, telling you to clean up. A good side of Drew, Drew came out. Like he wanted to actually help us, help a guy. Yeah. And then he got cancer. Yeah. And what kind of cancer did he get? 
Someone with the lymph nodes, right? Lymph you, have, you have the same thing. I had a Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. I think that's what he had, something like that. Yeah, but I think he had like a, a more extreme stage. Yeah, yeah, it was really unfortunate. Because... He and I actually would talk about it a lot. You know, we, we related about that, but we were very worried about you. He was instrumental in helping you get the help that you needed. Yeah, he would tell me the things that you guys, you know, tell me today, right? Like, like I know you feel shitty, but the way we do this is we go help another person. You know, we we go to meetings, we get a sponsor, we work steps. And, you know, he was like, it's about that way of life, you know, and he yes. just wanted me to learn it. And I still, I still have our like conversations saved in Snapchat. He'll send me like, he would have sent me voice messages telling me about, you know, like a higher power and how we pray and meditate. And he's like, he's like, dude, I'm at the point in my life where all I want is to fucking live, you know, and I'm, I'm still sober. This shit works, you know? And he would, he played a big part in letting me know, like, like this thing is possible. And the, I didn't never understood why at the time this guy's like on his deathbed trying to get me to get sober. When you went into treatment, how many days in did Drew pass away? It was like a couple of days into um, being at your house. So oh, I, you were at my house. You came out of treatment. You came to my house to one of our sober homes and he died. Like I probably had like a month and a half. Maybe from cancer. Months. Yeah, from, from cancer. And that was probably something that helped you realize like, fuck, this is like an angel, you know, to be able to have this guy come and change his own life to try to help me change my life. And then he passed away, but it was right at the time when you had already gotten sober. Yeah. So it was a sad story. I mean, really emotional at the time, but I mean, it's a very spiritual experience. Yeah. You know, very much. he did God's work and we talked about it. It's crazy how he was, he was trying to get me sober for like two years at that point. Right. And the time that I finally get this thing, he passes away. It's like he it's like he did his job on earth, you know. He did God's work. So you're coming up on a year of sobriety at the end of this month. Yeah. November 1st is going to be your one year sober. November 1st. You took recovery by the horns. In the last year, I've gotten to see a man become a man, spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally. You're a, you're a good man. I can I this is what I know about you. And I started seeing this at about six months. I was like, I can count on this kid. I can count on this kid not to go fuck up. I can count on this kid not to go relapse. I can count on this kid to count on himself. I can count on this, this guy. I don't even want to call you a kid. You're a man now, right? I can count on you to, um, to be accountable and hold others accountable. When you see something that doesn't jive with us, to let us know, to, to be a leader, to, to be a stand-up guy that's about this way of life. You took this thing very seriously, and you're still taking it seriously. When you look back, do you ever still ponder or think, I'd like to get high again? No. Why? The things that I have today, you know, I got a God in my life, my family in my life. I have real relationships. You know, I'm the first time in my life I'm comfortable and I'm happy in my skin. I got a brotherhood. You know, these things we talked about earlier. I have like a all, real brotherhood, a real brotherhood, people that care about me for, for me, not for what I have, which right. at the time was drugs and money. And it's, um, I'm chasing my dreams today. When I, you say you're chasing your dreams, what does that mean? What are you doing? I'm flying currently. You're ABC, what? I'm flying. Flying why? Because that was a dream when you were younger, like you thought I might want to fly one day. And so what happened? Now you are up in a plane learning how to fly? Yeah. I and mean, this just took place like in the last few weeks, months? Weeks, yeah. Okay. So now you go to an airport and you go into a plane and somebody teaches you how to fly. Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's a career path that I've always wanted to do, but because of, you know, my addiction and my culture, 
I didn't give it any thought, you right. know, because I was like, I need to have something that like doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, but just getting, getting to my right mind, you know, having a spiritual awakening and all that. I really did some soul searching and I'm like, I don't really care about money today. You know, I really don't. I want to have money so I can like be self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. But as far as like, I'd rather have spiritual growth than financial growth. The way I feel mentally and on the inside and my, how connected I am to God, that's really what's important to me. So the money, you know, the money will come, you know, the woman will come. I know all this. Mm -hmm. Everything that I want is just going to come in its own in God's time. But if I'm just so consumed by the third dimension and the money and the materialistic things, I'm not going to grow. And the work that you did to get there, I mean, I, I don't like to ruin anybody's anonymity or anything like that, but you did, besides therapy, besides group therapy and all the other things, you did some recovery work to be able to get to this mindset to yeah. be able to be in that type of like spiritual uh, lifestyle, correct? Yeah. And you gave it your all. You basically did recovery like you did drugs. Yeah, I went all in. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Okay, so so then you you now are uh, what's the plan? Are you trying to become like a commercial jet airline, like uh, a pilot that flies commercial? Yeah, that's or? that's the plan. You know, it's um. That's so far in the future. I try not to think about it. I just try to stay in the present because there's things that I'll trip out about, like my like that charge I got we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, what if this is going to affect my ability to, you know, I start thinking about things that I can't control. So I just I just remind myself every morning, like I'm going to do my best today, and God will take care of the rest in the future. You know, whatever happens, happens. I believe miracles happen. I believe that if you keep doing good, um, things work themselves out. And I say that from experience. I myself have things that haunt have haunted me from my past that as long as I keep putting one foot in front of the other and staying sober and doing what we're supposed to do in, in the recovery lifestyle, I believe things work themselves out and it happens in God's time, not my time. Not exactly. Your time. Exactly. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. You are, you're an inspiration. How old are you now? I'm 23. I'll be 24 in like two weeks. Nice. So you'll turn 24 in two weeks and you'll turn one year sober in, like a month and a half, month and two half. months or so. Month yeah. Wow. I was wrong. I said at the end of this month, it's actually the end of next month. Okay. Yeah. The end of October. You're well on your way. I think this is a beautiful thing. Your mother just said, love you, Cena, so much. Love you too, mom. <laughs> and you know, what's really cool is the fact that um, in our, especially in our community, um, the Iranian culture, a lot of mothers are helicopter moms. They hover. Yeah. yeah they hover. Sure. And they, they always want to like, Fix shit. The codependency runs rampant in our community. It's really bad. And, and so, um, I, and I wanted to say this. I've been thinking about saying this for a couple of days now before we decided to do this podcast. Is that your parents followed direction to a fucking T, to a T. They they not only almost killed you by giving you too much or spoiling you, but they also saved your life. Because they took direction from people. It's really hard to get a lot of parents to to follow the rules of what we do when it comes to helping their loved one. Um, they held back. They didn't keep enabling. They didn't keep giving you money. They didn't. They, they just listened. They listened to the professionals. They allowed us to do our jobs. And by doing that, they now have a son that's alive and well and doing well. And you're helping people. You help a lot of people, man. You helped yourself. Now it's time to help other people, just like Drew would tell you. Oh. And that's what I think if anything matters the most, there's your sister proud of you, little bro. If anything matters the most throughout this whole process, I think there's always hidden messages in all different 
scenes and scenarios and, and happenings. And I believe that Drew was a very, very special soul and is, is still a special soul that was, again, instrumental in helping you. He came, he went, he was living in the underbelly of the beast. You were living in the underbelly of the beast. And the two of you got out from under there and he, he tried to guide you, hold your hand to show you, told, told you everything that we try to tell you, but in his own Drew way. And he may have been the only one that you were actually listening to because you were still in communication with him. He was telling me constantly, talk to Cena. He hates your guts, but I think we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah, he tried to get me to talk to you. I know he tried. He yeah. really tried. And and I think that Drew sniffed me out, wanted to see who I was and what I was all about. And when he realized, like, I'm, I'm one of the good guys, like, he's like, no, you need to listen to this dude. But eventually you did. You took his guidance and and the fact that he passed away, but he really didn't pass away. We still got Drew, right? Absolutely. We still got Drew. Um I think that's it's amazing. I think you're amazing, and and I appreciate you coming and uh, talking about your recovering, showing people what real recovery is about. So that means this is what what matters to me the most: that the fentanyl is out there. The addiction is crazy. It's it's addictive, highly addictive. A lot of people are doing it. They don't realize what they're getting themselves into. They can die easily. Yeah. Some people don't care about if they die, but that's not the way it was supposed to happen. That's not the way it's supposed to have. We didn't come into this world to come and get dependent upon uh, any drug, but mo more importantly, a drug that'll kill you in a few seconds, right? Um, and and we've got to break through this shit. Like we've got to really find our, like get honest with our innermost selves and find our path out of out from the gates of hell and be able to go on a different path. And that's recovery so that we don't overdose and die. So there is hope that today, you know, from a guy that was addicted to fentanyl, that was overdosing and, and going into comas, you're lucky to be alive. And now you're alive and you're alive and well, and, and there's hope. And there's a few others around you. You know, I have pictures of those guys, right? Yeah, I have some yeah. pictures of you too. But like a few others around you that are all walking miracles that were full-blown heroin addicts, full-blown fentanyl addicts, and now they're, they're workers amongst workers. They're spiritual beings having spiritual experiences that are going out into the world and doing so many beautiful things. And being of service to their fellow man. That's what it's about. You finally, like you getting what we're doing here and, I, and that you, you've gotten this. And I love that, you know, and we've, you, you, you're a leader amongst leaders. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming to the corner today. It's been, it's been a pleasure, man. You know, the most beautiful thing about this is I think I'm in a unique position, you know, at 23 years old to like relate to the, to the young addicts. Let them know that this thing is possible when you're young, because I know how difficult it was for me to grasp it at a young age, mm -hmm. but you know, with the, like you said, with the fentanyl and the things that are out there now, you got to get at a young age. You probably won't live to see, you know, an older age. But so it's it's monumental to get at, this, at now than later. You'd be surprised. It's it's interesting on my TikTok alone. Just on my TikTok, uh, I get messages from a lot of people across this country, old pe older people. I'm talking like people in their 30s and 40s that are doing fentanyl. Hmm. They're getting it the same way that you were getting it, you know, in various outlets, right? And and they're like, how do I get off of this stuff? You better get off of it. You better get off of it. There's no surviving that stuff. Wow. And even if you survived for five years on fentanyl or 10 years on fentanyl, you're, when you have that soul sickness, you're dead. You're dead inside, right? And so physically, you will end up dying too. It's it's, it's inevitable. It's, it's only a matter of time. So uh, you're an inspiration, and thank you for coming to the corner today. Thank you for having me, Pastor. Much love. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys all for tuning in. See you. Love you. Till we meet again Sunday. <laughs>